life are good. <laughs> hey, hi, I'm Afton Corbin. Hi, I'm Michael Yates. This is Charles Chu. And I'm Robert Graham Jones. And this is The Culture Podcast. So today we're interviewing, as you heard, Robert Graham Jones. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. We've been having you on our list for a little while. So we're excited to have you on, on the no, podcast. I'm excited to be on. Yeah. And so can you tell us a little bit about your extensive <laughs> background <laughs> of what you've worked on at this point? Sure. Well, I, I was born in a small town in Ohio called Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is near Dayton. Now, the, the present claim to fame is it's where Dave Chappelle lives, and he oh. lives right down the street from my dad. So my dad is, you know, talks about, you know, bumping into Dave in the store, et cetera, et cetera. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so I came to California to go to college and in college I was studying math. I thought I wanted to get into math, but after getting into the more theoretical stuff, I got really disillusioned. And luckily I was really interested in photography. So I kind of followed the path of photography, got out of school and tried to get a job as a photographer's assistant. And things weren't really happening. I ended up doing a job where I was making cables, lighting cables for um, a um, Cine rent house. And I heard that uh, an animation company were, was looking for a driver. So my first film job was working for an animation company called Nepenthe Productions. And they did Watership Down. The film that I worked with them on was uh, The Plague Dogs, which not many people have seen. Um, but so my first couple years were in animation. And I became a editorial apprentice uh, in working on this animated film. And I figured out that I actually really liked working in editorial. I mean, it, it combined a lot of things I'm interested in. So music, photography, storytelling, all those things kind of came together. And I said, wow, I guess editorial is something that I can kind of sink into. You're the first editor we've ever had on our show. Yeah. We had a lot of questions about editing and everything, but just like step back even further, like into your childhood. Uh, was there anything that really, were you interested in filmmaking at that time? Or was it purely just math and photography? Uh, yeah, I wasn't, I didn't really understand what filmmaking was. And I think it's because the, the, the films that I grew up on were things like The Wizard of Oz. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the Wizard of Oz just so frightened me. <laughs> I still have <laughs> Wizard of Oz dreams. <laughs> um, I remember things like uh, The Sound of Music. And films were always kind of just, um, they were at arm's length. They weren't really something that I could embrace. And I was more interested in uh, like music, especially when I was in junior high school, high school. Um, the big thing that was happening when I was in junior high was uh, Michael Jackson just hit the scene. And I remember the first 45 I bought was Michael Jackson's ABC. And uh, that's all we used to talk about as kids is different musics. Um, Stevie Wonder was one of our favorites. We would always 
get together at somebody's house and bring out Stevie's newest album and put it on. And we'd all kind of huddle around it and listen to all the different things he was doing on it. So uh, I think more than anything, my entree into that world was more music and uh, photography. But the thing about math was it was kind of a, a good fallback because I was always good in math. And sometimes as a kid, you kind of fall into what you're good at, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what you're interested in. I think you should explain where you went to college. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the, uh, the, the elephant in the room because I went to Stanford University. So when he you says know. he's like good at math, it's, yeah. <laughs> he's like, it's a big math. deal. He's being humble. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it's so interesting that you math, uh, music, and photography. Because if I was going to explain to someone what edit is, I feel like it's those three things yeah. combined into one. So yeah. I feel like you, 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 were, you were always searching a little bit for, uh, for an edit in one way or another. Oh, absolutely. The one thing that I, I find fascinating is I remember in high school, we had these things called, I think they were called Cuisinart blocks. Does that ring a bell? these different color blocks and they'd be different lengths, but you could do um, multiplication by like a red block was uh -huh. like five and the, the yellow block was 10. Mm -hmm. I always kind of look back when I'm in editing and the, the length of shots always remind me of these Cuisinart blocks mm. that have to do with math uh, patterns because a lot of, a lot of editorial is patterns. Um, one thing I find fascinating is in live action editing, you're kind of recognizing patterns and building off them. Whereas I feel in animation, you're building patterns from the ground up. You're more creating patterns. Um, so it's the approaches are completely different and um, very challenging in their own ways. I, mean, I find animation editing to be extremely challenging. And I think the world at large has no idea what animation editing is. So they think we just like put shots to get, you know, we get all these things and we just stick them together and call it a day. Mm -hmm. But um, just creating rhythms is, it, it's, it's kind of a hard, it's a hard task. Can you, that brings you to, can you explain a little bit the best you can um, to someone what an edit per job even is, specifically in animation? Because I think some people in story uh, do think that it's just like, aren't you guys just sticking shots together <laughs> and call it a day? Uh, well, it's funny too, because the biggest uh, responsibility in animation is cutting storyboards. So edit works very closely with story. To, oh, let me turn that off. Uh, edit works really closely with story, um, taking the boards that story delivers and turning them into a, a story. We, the, the boards are usually delivered, I'd say 12 frame boards. And within those 12 frame boards, we have to find some kind of rhythm um, with temporary dialogue, music, effects, and that can take years. I mean, we're, we're dancing with the story department for a long time. And 
I kind of feel like on a certain level, that's the biggest responsibility. Um, it's also the responsibility of edit to follow the whole process through. So we go from storyboards into um, layout and in layout, all the characters are, are put in a frame, the virtual cameras added, the sets. So we cut those layout shots so we can de de uh, deliver them to animation. Animation takes them, animates the characters. I mean, it keeps bouncing down the line and uh, the editorial department does more and more things. But I think the biggest responsibility is fundamentally trying to get the story to work right. Because if you have something that's solid coming out of story, then everything else is kind of icing on the cake. I mean, I'm thinking about something like Soul, which so many things were worked out in story. And then we just kind of built upon that. Yeah, it's interesting that you you kind of started off in animation and then kind of shifted to live action a little later. Yeah. Uh, so the first animation job I was on was for a couple of years. And it was a total fluke because uh, this animation company, Dempente, was in downtown San Francisco. And I thought, oh, there must be animation companies all over the Bay Area. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, this was... I, uh, this is dating myself, but I'm realizing that this month I started at Nepenthe in, in February of eight, uh, 18. <laughs> <laughs> hey. And he looks so good, guys. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> 1981. So I finished the animation job and I was like, okay, if I'm going to stay in film, I got to, I got to get into this live action thing. So I worked on a couple low budget uh, features in the Bay Area, um, learned about um, sound editing, picture editing. And then I kind of got a big break out of nowhere. Uh, somebody asked me if I wanted to be the apprentice on a Disney project called Captain EO. Oh, snap. Yeah. So uh, I found myself Two on loves. the set. Yeah. Exactly. yeah, together. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a funny story because I was so excited to meet Michael Jackson on Captain EO. And when I met him, it was very uh, kind of bittersweet because he was actually a, a sad character. I mean, it, you, it, it's when the cameras were going, he was just sparkle and pizzazz and just an amazing performer. As soon as the cameras cut, he would just kind of withdraw into this shell and you could barely talk. He, he talked so soft. You had to kind of coax a conversation out of him. Um, and Did you come in hot with like, were you really trying to like, this is my chance to be his friend? Was that the energy you're coming uh, with? I, I wouldn't say friend, but I would say this is my chance to get to know him. But then I realized that he really didn't know anybody. Um, he was kind of the front, when I knew him, he was kind of the front man for the Michael Jackson empire. And he just happened to be kind of the actor in the whole thing. But he had about 10 handlers and they told him when to eat and where to go. And it was, it was all very strange. And I remember feeling after being around him for a few days, I was thinking, you know, I don't know, this person is probably not gonna live a long life because oh. he's just, he, he just 
had so much tragedy just kind of dripping off of him. So it was it was kind of a strange situation. But um, oh, and also the other thing in this situation was Francis Coppola was the director of the film, mm-hmm. and George Lucas was the producer of the film. So all these like titans were kind of coming together. And then I also found out later that um, Brad Bird did some writing on it. So mm-hmm. years later, when I met Brad, he said, "You were, did you work on Captain Neo? I was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but after working on that, um, I worked on a feature called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. There's a film company in, in Berkeley called The Saul Zance Company. And they were producing it. And uh, Daniel Day-Lewis was a star of it. So kind of after that, my career in live action kind of took off because the, the editor was a famous editor, Walter Merch. Mm-hmm. He, he worked on um, um, Apocalypse Now, uh, The English Patient, The Conversation. And after I worked with him, then it kind of gave me a legitimate stamp. It was like, oh, okay, this guy mm-hmm. must know he's, what he's doing if he was working with Walter Merch. So actually it was something I realized in my career. I've been super lucky to be uh, employed with really good people and that's always in this collaborative field if you're working with good interesting people it always leads to the next thing mm-hmm. and I kind of learned along the way to just keep following it and not to kind of worry where it's going because it'll always be interesting every job is interesting every different animated film I've worked on has been <laughs> completely different and interesting in its own right. So that's definitely what, what keeps me excited about the field. You got any good Walter Murch stories? That dude is a character. Well, okay, here's, here's one. He, uh, I'm a morning person. So I would get to the cutting room at like eight or nine in the morning. He would usually come in around 11, maybe 12 and He's Walter's really interested in all these kind of esoteric things like um, how were the pyramids built? And there's a, 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 a astrophysics question of, called Bode's Law about the spacing of the planets. And if you play notes on a piano based on these intervals, <laughs> the sound, I mean, just all this stuff. So we'd be talking about all this es- esoteric stuff. And then around four or five, he would start cutting. And um, and he would he would work you know late into the night, but it just it made for a long day. But he's he's a he's an amazing mind and uh, very interesting editor. Very methodical about his cuts. And he would think about a cut for hours before he would make it. Whereas I'd work with other editors. I work with an editor named Dee Dee Allen, and uh, she did she did some amazing work. She did Bonnie and Clyde. Reds, mm-hmm. Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, The Hustler. I mean, she, her her work is just incredible, but her working style was completely different. I mean, she would come in eight o'clock, we'd be cutting. She would barely stop to go to the bathroom. I mean, we, <laughs> were, we would be working till lunch. She would take a half an hour for lunch and then just keep on jamming. And she would try things all the time. She would um, not worry about making mistakes. She was always like a whirling dervish of making cuts and 
sometimes she'd find some uh, accidental thing that worked. And her, her whole thing was just, mm-hmm. you know, experiment as much as, as you can. And actually, I think when I was working with her, she was about 70 years old and I could barely keep up with wow. her. She's, wow. she was a dynamo. <laughs> <laughs> Were you an assistant editor? Yes. Whenever I watch the movies, I always see like the editor and then there's the assistant editor, first assistant, second assistant. Can you kind of explain the hierarchy and how that yeah. works? <laughs> um, it's changed a lot over the years because when I started as an apprentice, an apprentice, that's, that position was really a learning position. So you would do things like just rewind film. I mean, you take a fat, this was back in the days of thousand foot reels. So somebody hand you a thousand foot reel and ask you to rewind it. So you put it on this machine and it would rewind from the tail to the head. Or the other big thing was coating film. So you take a thousand foot roll of film and put it on a machine that was heated up and the thing would ka-chunk, ka-chunk, printing these Acme code numbers on the film because they're back in the film days of actual film, the sound and the picture were separate elements. So you'd have one reel of sound and you'd Mm -hmm. have one reel of picture and you'd have to code them together so you'd know how to stay in sync. Mm-hmm. Um, then there were also two prevailing systems of cutting. One was on a flatbed system. So you might have seen these pictures of editors in, these, in front of these big tables with these reels that were laid out horizontally. That was a Kim system. And that was something that was really big in Hollywood. So that was a Hollywood mm-hmm. cutting system. In New York, because all the spaces are so small, editors worked on moviolas, which look like, almost like stand-up sewing machines. Mm-hmm. And the reels are going um, vertically. And the, the, the machine makes a lot of noise and it's very intimidating. And directors didn't want to get anywhere close to it. <laughs> um, but actually getting back to your question, so assistance, back in these days, would be responsible for helping the editor cut. So you'd be on the Moviola system, you'd be standing next to the editor, handing the editor uh, clips, one minute piece of film that you could just roll up and you could hold it in your hand. You'd Mm -hmm. run it through this machine. And then afterwards, the editor would give you the tails of of this take you take it over to another machine on the side and you would rewind it. So mm. the editors uh, helped it. I mean, the assistants helped the editors cut. We logged film, we coded film. We basically made sure everything was organized. And that system also kind of bridges into, into animation editing because the assistants are really the organizers of what's going on in the cutting room. The first assistant, is really kind of responsible for how the cutting room is running. And the second assistants are doing a lot of the logging. Uh, In animation, there's a lot of logging that takes place, especially with um, scratch dialogue and production dialogue. Uh, And then there's the lead editor who's more responsible for the story side of of the cut and, and, and kind of 
is responsible for having keeping. I would say the lead editor on the film is keep has to keep the whole film in their head, pretty much mm-hmm. like the director. I mean, I would think a good editor is helping the director find the path that they're looking for because the path is not always clear. Mm-hmm. And I always think that the directors need assistance along the path from a party that's a little um, distanced from the writing and the creation of it. So they can look at it a little more objectively. It's not a good word. They, they can look at it from a different angle mm-hmm. and, and help the director kind of realize what the director's trying to do. Because what you're trying to do and what you're doing are not always the same. And if, if an editor's doing their, their work right, they're helping the director get to the place that the director's trying to get. And a lot of times, the director and the, the whole production, we don't quite know where we're going, but we know we got to keep pushing forward. Also, good editors have to kind of walk the line of being supportive and not being always the naysayers of, oh, that won't work, that won't work. I mean, (laughs) which is something I always try to um, work on is it's much easier to think in your mind something's not going to work until you actually put it together and you look at it and say, oh, that's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it's it's a multifaceted job. So with that job, I feel like there's a lot of relation and overlap with story. And I feel like edit and story have a very interesting uh, sibling rivalry, I'd like to say, where mm-hmm. we, uh, I feel like we're the um, obnoxious younger siblings that are trying to get the director's attention. And like, you know, and uh, there's, it's a, it's a, I know it's interesting to explain, but I'd love to hear from your perspective what <laughs> it's like to work with story and why that relationship is so uh, important. It's like a- Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I mean, I, my most satisfying uh, job experiences is where I can actually work closely with story because some films allow story and editorial to work more closely than others. And story comes at stuff with a certain amount of intention and which is a good thing. And a lot of times I think editorial doesn't quite understand what the intention is. So if the intention is not understood correctly, then editorial just goes off and kind of does what they think this stuff, you know, they get all this material and they look at it and say, okay, this must mean I have to cut it this way. And then they come back and show it to the director and to story. And sometimes story is scratching their heads like, wow, how did they ever get that? How did they ever go that direction? <laughs> and it, you know, I can I understand that point of view because it, if if you try to go at it from without any collaboration, then almost anything can come back because it is fascinating how many different ways you can cut storyboards with scratch dialogue and a script. I mean, when somebody hears this, they probably think, oh, that must be pretty simple. You just read the script, see the dialogue, got the boards. Oh, it's just like ABC, but it's not the case at all because, I mean, that's why I always love having story artists pitch their scenes 
because <laughs> just hearing how somebody, what's the cadence through the scene? What's the emotion? What's, you know, where can you feel things getting dramatic? All those things you can't really tell unless somebody's giving you a presentation. Mm-hmm. Now, it may, I'm not, not to say that it will always work, but if you don't understand the original intention, then it's, it can be hard to make something that makes sense to, to, to the director. Because, I mean, I, now that I'm thinking about it, I guess I have to say that usually what we're trying to do the first th- time through is give something to the director that they can go with. We're not necessarily trying to satisfy the story department is what I'm saying. And <laughs> if, if the story department and the editorial department are on the same page, then it's kind of a mutual thing. Like I love to show scenes to the story people before I've shown the directors anything, just to make sure that we can go into the room and they can say, yes, this is what, you know, or he, we tried this and that didn't work or just to kind of be on the same page because it can get difficult if you have it, because we're talking about three different parties. We're talking about story, editorial, and the director. And if everybody's on a different page, then it's hard to get to the next square because it's mm-hmm. always about getting to the next square because whatever we're doing, is not final. I mean, it's, it's always yeah. up in the air. And so you want to set up a environment so you can get from square one to square two to square. And so you can just keep, keep piggybacking on what, where you're trying to go. And a lot of times you don't know where you're trying to go, but you want to have that open kind of field of discovery to get to somewhere where you've got an interesting story. Yeah, it's a lot of communication back and forth, which is so, yeah. I don't know, it makes it so funny, at least to me on my end, because like as story artists, we, we spend a lot of time on these drawings, we get them all beautiful and perfect. And then it might not work for the timing. So you just strip out a couple of those boards and you're like, no, I I like those boards and I wanted to see them <laughs> yeah. on screen, but it doesn't matter in, in the big picture of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, or even like, I feel like I'll like, there'll be one ugly board that I'm like, could you just not hold on that board? And they try <laughs> other options you could have picked. And you pick that and it'll, it'll last from screening after screening. Like I'll do better drawings and that will be, no, this one, we're keeping it. <laughs> yeah, to push in. <laughs> yeah. And that, I find that fascinating too, because you can have two ends of the spectrum. You have story artists who draw stuff super loose. I mean, it's, it's almost like chicken scratch. But sometimes those chicken scratchy drawings can elicit emotion that some super tight drawing with this all animated out just can't get to. And Mm -hmm. what I always, my big thing is that in the realm of animation, storyboards are just a vehicle to get down the road. They're not in the end. Nobody's going to see the nice fancy drawings. I mean, they'll be on the on the added on the extras. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we'll see them in every screen. We'll know for years, we'll know. but That's yeah. Right. <laughs> it's so, 
I think it's funny too, just like an inside thing. But uh, in my experience, pitching to edit is so interesting because when you pitch to the story team, your goal is to like entertain them and you're making them laugh and you're, mm-hmm. you know, making them, you know, you're getting them riled up and whatever. And yeah. you pitch it to edit and edit is, I feel like, is they're looking at it with different eyes. They're like, <laughs> how can I cut this? How can I ever? So you pitch and you're getting to your joke and it's like dead silence. And you're like, okay, okay, I'm gonna keep going. I'll get them. And it's like, like every time, like this time I'll make them laugh. And they're just like, arms crossed looking mm-hmm. focused and it's like oh, dang it but it took oh. me a while to realize like oh they're not they're thinking about how they're gonna cut this and where the music's I, I, gonna come in oh i got a i got a perfect story for you because as editors we're known as the comedy killers <laughs> <laughs> we just we tease each other about it and it's really evident in live action so I, I worked on a film, uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, with mm-hmm. um, Steve Martin and Michael Caine. And during the dailies, we'd watch the dailies, and the crew would be in. This is back when the crew watched dailies too, and they would be showing stuff. the The, the room would just be falling out. Everybody's laughing. It's these guys are hilarious. Everything was funny. It's every just every take, funny, 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 funny. Then you take the material. You get in the cutting room and you start cutting it. And I mean, part of it is you've seen the same thing over and over and over and over again. And once you show scenes to people and everybody, all they always bring it up like, remember in dailies, remember how funny that part was? <laughs> and they're looking at the editors like, how come you guys can't make it funny like that? <laughs> so I think part, and part of it too is that and I know we all suffer from this. The more you see something, the more it loses its luster. Mm-hmm. So even things that are hilariously funny, after you've watched it for six months, then you start to question it. It's like, oh, that joke isn't funny. Listen, we had a screening and nobody laughed, even though the audience that you're screening it for has seen it 20 times. Mm-hmm. People just don't have the energy to laugh anymore. So. It's no, it's a problem. Ed, I mean, editors are like that. I mean, and and to, to come to edit's defense, uh, comedy is so much about timing, and it's so easy when I'm pitching and I'm in control of the mouse to just click through that perfect timing. When you're trying to actually find it, it's very it's it can make or break a joke just how much time you let it rest or if you if, or how quick the pacing needs to be. So it's very easy to be like. Do it like I did it. Just you know, just perfectly mm-hmm. get, hit yeah. that mark. But uh, yeah, when you're like, yeah. you know, Robert, you're talking about creating rhythm and like a pitch rhythm can be so different from like a cut rhythm. When you add in all those elements, how those yeah. lines are delivered with scratch, you know, it it changes everything. Yeah, and yeah. also shot to shot. I mean, because sometimes you you have to leave a shot on long enough for it to read, mm-hmm. but the the comedy of it doesn't want that rhythm quite like that mm-hmm. it's, but no we we editors always tease ourselves you know it's like okay yeah like we're the comedy killers <laughs> you guys should get jackets made <laughs> I <know. laughs> uh i think working at edit on soul was a pretty interesting experience because pete are working a story in it together because pete works so much in edit and i feel like that was such an interesting uh, experience being down in there and seeing whole scenes come together just in edit. So, I, yeah, it's a. I, on the other side, where things are like, oh man, that got like killed. I feel like 
sometimes edit like you're, a scene that you totally don't even believe in. You get the pages, you board it, and you're like, this is stupid. This is going to get cut. And, but the way they're able to inject life in it through timing and stuff can actually make some scenes really sing too. Yeah, after I was going to ask you, so having done your own short where you were directing and you you boarded stuff and then had it go into layout and animation, were there anything that, that surprised you in the process of having your boards turned into animation? Yeah, well, I definitely, uh, I think I gained a better understanding of edit from a story artist perspective who's just sitting in the corner who's like, why can't they, why did my scene get cut out? I feel like I delivered all my goods. I brought fire to the, to the room. And then I, yeah, I did my part, you know, but uh, then going in and uh, sitting in uh, the room with Amira and being like, no, that doesn't work. It's so, it's so interesting how something seems so clearly in your head, like this is going to work. And then you watch it on the screen and it's just not quite landing. Uh, it's a, uh, it's very interesting. Like you're trying to stitch together this like crazy like quilt, um, and still kind of match what the boards have. I think Mira's really good about like I think you meant this. Like, do you want me to add? Do you want to add a board here so that we get to this moment? Um, yeah, I just need a more more understanding of the pipeline as a whole and like how precious like you know we get about our story moments. Uh, I think I have a little bit more uh, bigger picture. So you went into live action for a bit. And then how did you end up at Pixar? A friend of mine, uh, uh, Edie Blyman, was cutting Toy Story 2 and she needed some extra help. So she asked me if I could come in for six weeks to work on Toy Story 2. And in that period when I was working with her, originally it was supposed to go direct to video mm -hmm. and Disney discovered, oh, no, 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 we need to released this as a feature. So while I was working, they asked me if I could stay on for basically on a month to month agreement kind of a thing. And at a certain point, Toy Story 2 got completely rewritten, new directors got brought in, and there was a ton of work that happened, had to happen fast. And after working on Toy Story 2, uh, it looked like I was going to be on staff. Although I must admit that I thought I, I still had a freelancer's mentality. So mm -hmm. with every show I was on at Pixar for like the first four or five years, I kept thinking, okay, this is my last Pixar show. Let's see. I wonder what, what, what I'm going to be doing next. Um, but I ended up on uh, Monsters incorporated for a couple of years and I think Ratatouille was next. By the time I was on Ratatouille, then I figured, oh, I might be here for a while. Yeah, um, you also worked on Incredibles, right? Yeah, you know, Incredibles was, that was an amazing film to work on because Brad came in with these storyboards he'd been working on for 10 years. I mean, the scenes were so tightly organized from the very beginning and I think I'm pretty sure every scene that was boarded was in the film. Nothing got taken out. And I've never worked on a film since that, you know, that scenes lasted like that. So he'd spent mm -hmm. a lot of time thinking about that project. Is that, that's so interesting. Do you, can you say that you have like a preference or like, cause something like that seems like, oh, wow. So straightforward. Um, this guy really knows what he wants, but then someone as like 
eccentric and like we'll discover this as we go as pete doctor who's yeah. like running uh uh screenings off the avid <laughs> <laughs> the day before like but in that there's so much exploration like is there do you have a preference or are you just kind of taking every every yeah. assignment as it goes i pretty much take every uh, assignment as it goes because even within the Brad Bird universe, there was always discovery. It was just on a different scale. I mean, rather than this big picture scale, it was more on the scene level or kind of on the shot level and even in the dialogue and performance. Because one thing that's really unique about animation editing is, I mean, we get in there and we're cutting syllables and breaths and um, all kinds of expressions and every actor is so different that that's always a challenge. Um, so I think each project just presents different challenges. So to answer your question, Afton, I don't, I don't really have a preference. Um, I kind of like to just discover things in, in different ways. I, I, do, <laughs> I have to admit when I worked on Cars 3. For some reason, I just wasn't super excited about working on Cars 3. But once I got in there and started working on it, it was amazing. I mean, there, was, there were so many different things to discover in that universe. And I really kind of, um, I was a little upset with myself for kind of prejudging it, thinking that, you know, there was something about it that I wouldn't be interested in. But it was, it was actually <laughs> pretty fascinating. Yeah, Yates, you were you were on Cars Three, right? Yeah, I think that's the first show we worked on together. Yeah. <laughs> Delivering his boards, being like, "How come yeah. Robert keeps yeah. cutting out my boards?" <laughs> no, it's like Robert came in. And he was like, "I don't know where I'm on this film." Then he saw my boards. It was like, "Wow!" So <laughs> <laughs> Reinspired. <laughs> uh, I, I'm just curious how, as an editor, you guys don't cra- go crazy listening to the same sounds over and over and over again. I was on Toy Story 4 and we were went we moved downstairs for a little bit to be closer to edit. And so from my office, I could just hear a bunch of like <gasps> gasps over and over again, or like yeah. the same two or three lines from the movie that are now forever burned into my head. Yeah. And it's like, that's your guys' lives. Like that's yeah. all you do is just listen to little specific sounds or audio for music, like music tracks over and over again. It is a problem, and some of us do go crazy. <laughs> How is that um, working from home now? Like, is your wife like upset? Like, turn it down, Robert. <laughs> I. It's funny because I work exclusively on headphones just for okay. that. So just to give her, because yeah, she heard what I was doing. It would be just <laughs> like I was working on something at Saul's Ants. I can't remember the, the independent feature I was working on, but down the down the hall, they were working on Amadeus, oh. and you know the the opening of Amadeus where it's I, I don't know the piece of music, but it's that they played that over and over and over for like it had to have been I heard that song for a year coming down the hall and to this day i still have amadeus dreams <laughs> <laughs> luckily i really like the movie so it, yeah, you know, that, yeah. <laughs> it's a good one you were talking about cutting like 
syllables and like different acting performances and storyboards and animation. But when you're cutting in live action, you don't, you probably don't have that much control. What's yeah, that like don't. switching between those two? That's, that's probably the, the biggest difference. And there are certain things you can get away with actually in live action that people don't really notice. So if you're, if you're cutting a scene and you're cutting from one character to another, when you're on the other character, you can put all kinds of stuff in the character that's off camera in their mouth. It's not there. Mm-hmm. And you can also, if the cam- if the character is on camera, if the performance is similar, there are quite a few times you can put in the dialogue that just matches the lips. But in the, the, the piece you had, maybe there was a, you know, a firecracker or a bird or something in the background that messed the take up. But sometimes you can sneak the dialogue in on it. But in both, you're always at the mercy of good acting, but I think even more so in live action. I mean, you really have to have a good performance in live action. In, 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 um, in animation, to some extent, you can create a performance that may not have been there from re-piecing stuff together. One of the things we do a lot is speed stuff up, and I'm not quite sure why that is, but for some reason, sped up dialogue works better in animation. I, I don't know why that's a thing. Is it, I, I yeah. just assume this is just my little two second take on it is like, I feel like when you're, when actors are acting for, for animation, it's not the same as how we talk. And I feel like when you're a person with another person, it's always going to be faster. Oh. And like, yeah. I feel like, I don't know, maybe that could have some kind of an influence on that, that animation performance who knows but yeah i I wish we could try more recording scenes with two um actors working off of each other Mm -hmm. because the the uh the the fear is always that they're stepping on each other Mm -hmm. and you know that can be an issue but i think to a certain extent you know we're losing an opportunity to maybe gain something with just two actors playing off each other and it, it I think it takes a couple sessions too because you can't just plop a couple actors in a room and think you're going to get you know a great thing with the with the chemistry of both of them. But I noticed that we kind of we shy away from that. It doesn't happen a lot. I'm actually really big on production dialogue, kind of getting into it as soon as possible and experimenting with it as much as possible because that's what you're really shooting for. The scratch is just kind of helping you get to that point. Yeah. Um, I remember on Finding Dory. Yeah, Finding Dory. Andrew was shooting um, production dialogue very early. And I was thinking, gosh, this he's recording stuff really early. I wonder if that's going to be a problem. And I think it actually ended up really in his favor because people got used to the characters. You had longer time to kind of live with the characters because if you fall in love with a scratch performance and you have to you have to replace it with production, it can be hard. It can be hard to unlearn certain things that you really liked about the scratch because it's going to be different and the actor is going to react to it in a completely different way. Um, I thought Pete was really good about that with Soul. I mean, 
because he had all kinds of different production performances and I thought they all in the end they all really worked well together it was pretty pretty amazing and I think that's a big in my mind that's one of the biggest responsibilities of the director is casting because casting is so that's such a big thing to get that something that you're looking for it's it's funny too I I've I've heard some people almost on the street talking and I'd say to myself, God, they would make a great <laughs> animation voice. But you, it, it doesn't, a lot of times it doesn't translate because you bring people into a studio and they're like reading off, you know, they, it's not mm-hmm. what they were doing at all. But, yeah, yeah, but there's certain like tones and voices that you're like, man, if you ever got into voice acting. Exactly. Like- it's such the human part of it. And it's not, it's, it, I think, I hope it's always going to be like that because, you know, every time I hear a synthesized voice, it's like reading a, something off, it just drives me insane. And I've recently heard some books that are like that. It's like, really? You're going to do a book on tape off a synthesized voice? <laughs> <laughs> this sounds terrible. <laughs> Uh, like now that you've done it I feel like other things like that like books on tape have been a little bit ruined are you are you in there like judging it if, if, if something's not working I get very judgmental it's I'm I'm my poor wife having to listen to me you know watch something when something's not working and I'm grumbling <laughs> about it <laughs> and it's really you- bad in the theater that's got like bad sound or you know I'll be like standing up like this the right speaker is not working <laughs> <laughs> Focus do you walk you. out <laughs> I, I do sometimes yeah I have walked yeah and they'll give me free tickets but <laughs> I, mean, I live in Berkeley and down there's a terrible theater in Berkeley United Artists oh, and they have, them out. <laughs> yeah, I'm calling them out you guys it's, they have the sticky floors you mean you never want to go into a theater and you have you, your feet are sticking on the Dang, floor. Rob, the movie theater business is hurting right now. Let's give them something. To- okay. <laughs> you, you might have to edit that part out because we, you know, we don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> no, we're keeping that in. That's- <laughs> I went to, I had to show Coco around. I remember when I was an assistant editor on Coco. And I remember we took it to, the, we had to rent out a theater and their speakers were all messed up. I, I had to like pause everything. I'm like, I have to fix their speakers for them. And I was like, what the hell? This sound is terrible. But the funny thing was like, nobody noticed, Yeah. It, you know, which is the, that's the sad part is like, if they're like that sometimes because no one else complains until an editor gets mm-hmm. there. It's that, you know, it's that humbling, you know, I feel like every once in a while we have to go back to the humbling experiences that people they talk in, they're eating popcorn. They're not really, you know, they're half watching, half like some of them. Mm-hmm. My, my, my parents turn on movies. My mom specifically turns on a movie to fall asleep. That's how she goes to sleep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you said you started at Pixar on Toy Story 2. And that was like uh, late 90s. Yeah, 98. 98. So in animation at that time, even at this time, darn a terrible amount of Black people. What was it like yeah. back then? <laughs> Terrible amount. Well, th- you know, that's that's an interesting question because the producer who hired me on Toy Story 2 was an African-American woman named Karen Robert Jackson. And mm-hmm. she was at Pixar for, I think she was there for maybe five years. I'm trying to think. There was a woman in Story, Marcia. Oh, this is, yeah, you, you guys wouldn't have heard any of these names. These are long. <laughs> so, but when I first started, there were actually quite a few 
people of color working at Pixar. And it seemed, things seemed to change moving into the building in Emeryville for some reason. I, I don't know exactly what that was about, but uh, I think they went from like 250 people to about 500. And mm-hmm. in that expansion, for whatever reason, they just people of color was just kind of left behind. And I don't know what happened or... Was that something you also experienced before that, like in live action or was it oh, much yeah. more? Oh, yeah. No, li- live action was exactly the same way. I did have uh, a mentor, uh, an editor that I work with named George Bowers. Mm-hmm. And uh, George hired me to be his assistant on a film called True Believer. But he cut um, Harlem Nights for Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. He cut... Um, a League of Their Own. He cut a, a, several films for uh, Penny Marshall, A League of Their Own, Awakenings. Um, and he, unfortunately, he passed away about 10 years ago, but he had quite a distinguished film career. But he was the only other Black editor that I had ever met. And wow. it was like that for, for years and years and years. I mean, I was in in, in most spaces, I was always the only black person in the room. The industry, it, it has changed over the years, but you know, it hasn't really changed enough. There's so many fields in animation that I didn't even know or really understand until mm-hmm. I got hired. You know, I just, I edited my own crappy student films <laughs> and I didn't even know that it was editing. I was just kind of throwing stuff together in Premiere. Um, and then I was like, oh, there's an art to this um, when I got hired. Um, so I guess a question is like, for the people listening who like, you know, who are, you know, got that Stanford math brain, but they also like <laughs> photography, like, and they just don't know what edit is yet. Like, is there any like advice you could give them or direction you can point them on how you, you know, can even learn or get into something like edit? Yeah. Uh, kind of after the fact, looking back, I think one of the best ways to learn what editing is is just to watch a bunch of films and one of the ways you can look at films and if I'd be on a flight going somewhere and there'd be a film on on the airplane Mm -hmm. I'd watch it but without the sound and if you start watching stuff without sound you have a whole new appreciation for what editing is actually doing because if the film is working nicely. If it's a good film, you you don't notice anything. I mean, it's it's that weird. They call it the invisible art. I mean, the best edited films are just invisible in a good way. So I think people can learn a lot by uh, watching films. I always encourage young people to read as much as possible, to read different things. Um, to kind of uh, expose themselves to different types of music, um, different performances, theater, dance, all these kind of forms of artistic expression help you realize different ways to tell stories because that's really what editors are trying to do is to tell a story. But as far as actually getting started professionally yeah I don't know it's it's one of those things that it's kind of a hard thing to approach because it's so amorphous (laughs) it's it's Mm -hmm. almost like 
a sculptor, you know, it's like, oh, so you want to be a sculptor? Well, I guess you just start with a, a bunch of clay. Although, <laughs> actually, now that I think about it, these days, because of the amount of technology that's available to people with an iPhone and iMovie, you can just jump in and start editing stuff. You'd be surprised what you would learn by just trying to stick a couple pieces of film together because mm -hmm. it seems so simple until you actually try to do it. And yeah. then you're like, oh, especially with I these, guess. I was just gonna say, especially with these apps that we have nowadays, I just, you know, even though it's like, I'm like, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm too old for it at this point, but the TikTok <laughs> videos that are coming out and stuff, which are like ridiculous and stuff. I've seen some stories where I'm like, they thought about the timing yeah. and they like, for sure, baby editing. Like this is basically. Yeah. yeah. No, that's it. I mean, they're doing it. Those yeah. TikTok things, those are well-crafted pieces. I mean, they're learning a lot of stuff. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of the inspiration these days. It's like, you know, look at TikTok. <laughs> yeah. I do watch a lot of TikTok because I'm like, sometimes their comedic timing is just so good. <laughs> I know. I I'm know. like, how are they doing this? So funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like well, if I'm like a, a high schooler or coming out of college, would you just suggest making short films? Yes, absolutely. If, if yeah. I sent Pixar a reel of just my TikToks, would you guys accept it? <laughs> <laughs> These are good questions. These are the questions we're going to get. <laughs> So would you say just like trying to shoot short films on your own and just yep. trying to cut them? Yeah, yeah. But and I think even kind of even more, when I shouldn't say even more important, but equally as important, just kind of immerse yourself in various art forms. I mean, I've, I've actually been reading a lot of poetry lately just to, to see kind of ideas that people can get across in a economical fashion right? mm -hmm. i'm still in awe of amanda gorman's like inauguration poem i mean she basically walked up on stage and just dropped a bomb on, <laughs> on the country you know? <laughs> it was just such you know, just just with words just telling the story i mean it's that that was so inspiring to me and and you know on a certain level you know it, it looks simple but you start deconstructing and it's like, wow. <laughs> yeah. uh, my last question was just like, uh, you mentioned like when you first started cutting, like having the films and having to rewind it and everything versus now where it's like all digital, it seems like technology is always getting better and better, making your job theoretically easier and easier. What would you want to see in the future that you think would make editing even easier? I think that's kind of a misnomer because it's not easier. <laughs> <laughs> There's really nothing about it is easier. I mean, it, it appears to be easier, but um, the, I, I, it's funny because I've been thinking about this a lot lately. The time that we used to use back in the film days of actually like rewinding stuff or physically manipulating the film, while you were doing that, you were actually thinking about certain things and kind of formulating different ways, different approaches of what you're doing. So I think the myth is that our minds are actually working faster than they really are. So mm -hmm. in our current situation where, you know, we can put together three or four different cuts in the afternoon and do all these things quickly, but 
there's still certain decisions that fundamentally have to be made that aren't really time dependent when you really start to think about, you know, how you're telling the story. Mm-hmm. So I think on a certain level, I'm kind of thankful that the, the big questions that you have to deal with are still kind of similar. And it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like writing things, meaning people used to always write novels with typewriters and mm-hmm. then they got the uh, word processor and the computer and all these things that on the face of it make it seem like you could actually do it easier. But if they didn't have a story to tell, none of that, <laughs> none of that makes a difference at all. I think the, the, the bigger kind of breakthroughs are kind of discovering lines of communication. It's kind of what Afton was kind of getting at in terms of how the different departments can communicate with, with each other. I think that's that's more where the breakthroughs will be is because story and edit, you know, I'm a I'm a latest down in here, right? <laughs> story and edit should really be much more on the same page than they are in general at Pixar. And when they are, then the projects will be that much better. I mean, it, it's it really should there really should be much more what is it called? Or just kind of woven together. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, and they, they, people have given it lip service, things like, oh, editorial and story will be in the same floor. And, uh, you know, that's not, that doesn't really, <laughs> that's not really it. You just have to like, we just fight for the snacks more, but it's still not, <laughs> yeah. you know, walk past them to get to the bathroom. But no, but when it does work, it's, it's really fun, you know, fun, it's fun yeah. and it feels like there's a, yeah, it's a nice energy. And I think that's those kind of things will be where the where the breakthroughs will be. Just figuring out how teams can work better and faster together. Not not even be, I shouldn't say better and faster, but just the, it's where the collaboration is more immediate. Yeah. Well, thanks for for having coming on the show for us. And uh, Robert's probably the chillest person on campus at Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> No, that was a great Thanks. conversation, though. It made me think about a lot of things. Yeah, it's good to reflect on the on on your uh, career, man. And it's an honor to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much for your time, man. Oh, thank you, thank you. It was fun. Cool. So think twice, cut once. <laughs> <laughs> wow, save that one. You saved that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the culture. <laughs> <laughs>